What's up, Energy fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Kick this off. Welcome back to this week's episode. I'm here in Zoomland with Sarah Tamalarison, CEO of Soda OG. Sarah, welcome back for uh, round two. How how's everything in Sarah's world? Yeah, things are going well. I was looking at the year end, and yeah, we've had some pretty cool things happening at Soda OG. Yeah, we've been deploying a lot of uh, predictive analytics this year, so it's been exciting. Predictive analytics. Yeah. yeah, that's, and that's an interesting topic, right? And we're going to dive into it and AI and all that fun stuff that yeah. you guys are doing. But, you know, I, I have to at least get on a personal level here before we get too technical. How, I mean, you know, we just got off of Christmas. So how was, how was Christmas for you guys? Was it the most amazing Christmas ever? It was, yes. Um, I, you know, I look at it year over year and I think the time I get to spend with my kids over yes. the holiday season has been, a, you know, le- like when I would say higher quality, it means less distractions. Yes. And today I have a team that kind of handles a lot of the small fires that customers will send me a note on. Like all I have to do is hit forward or sometimes most customers will copy my team as well. And I have a pretty responsive team. So that's very exciting. Um, yes. Yeah, because, you know, those are things you can't buy with cash. That's just, it It has to come from the inside. Yes, so I'm it does. And excited about that. No, that's good. So, I mean, clearly as, as a company like yourselves, you guys have been in business now. You're, you, you're, I would say you're relatively established. Was it hard to, I guess, bring in enough people to where you could essentially delegate instead of, because as a CEO, most of the time, especially as a small company, you yeah. want to know what's happening. You want control. You want to be the one yeah doing and operating everything to make sure because it's your baby right and so have has how has that sort of evolved say over the last year I mean because I would imagine you grew pretty substantially is is it do you find it easy to let things go and, and allow people to 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 do what they're supposed to do or do you find, kind of find yourself still looking over people's shoulders or what does that look like so I think this is common to like all CEOs right and I see that like oh you know what you're they're a micromanager or like you'll hear feedback from employees that oh like on social media right you hear because today that's an awesome part about social media because you know everyone gets expressed what they want etc right (laughs) Um, so but I think with like Elon Musk gets uh complaints about being a micromanager right Mm -hmm. So using that example, no, I think it's actually easy for CEOs to let things go to the right people. Right. Because we're very cautious about the brand and what you're standing for. So if the person you, you can't just delegate it to someone that has a very casual attitude about it. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Because you, you would, yeah, so that's what I mean. So it's not that I have a problem letting it go. Um, previously, I mean, I've had the team evolve. Uh, we we have vision and mission values now for Soto OG. Everyone okay. was patching it out. And the previous team, I could never get them excited about it, right? This team, I do. Would you uh, say that comes from defining a vision that everyone buys into? Yes, but you can't force people to buy into it, right? Because people want to get paid. They want to do an eight hour day and go home. But so how do you get, yeah. So how do you get people to buy into the vision? So it's hard, right? Like uh, it comes from recruiting and hiring. You, we've uh, been blessed enough where we do get a lot of applicants, but it's about really honing in on the soft skills and understanding do they really enjoy what they do? Mm. Um, how excited can they be? Can you motivate them with bonuses? Are they motivated purely only by cash or do they, do they really enjoy the work they're going to do? Yes. So those are the pieces we kind of look for. Interesting. I mean, That's... I make so many mistakes on this before because I'm not an HR person, but I also truly don't know if an HR person would get that. I'm not sure. 
Well, it depends if they're a transactional HR person or if they're transformational. And I think there's a huge difference, right? And so kind of going back to your point, um, I, I had the pleasure of, of moderating a panel about about startups and the startup life and, and what people don't tell you about starting you know, or running or growing a startup. And a lot of it was selecting and how to identify the right talent that fits into the the mold and into the culture and everything else right and and a lot of it was like a, a lot of sort of the the common denominator which was interesting was a lot of founders and stuff typically found themselves hiring for the soft skills and then training for the hard skills because if you know and and because a lot of the hard skills now today arguably and I know there's you know there's always debate but it's a lot of it's commoditized right it's it's a lot of stuff that can be self-taught and it's a lot of repetition but unless you have the soft skills to build a work within a team environment and to be motivated and and then you know on that on the flip side having the ceo or the executive team um truly understanding what drives their employees and especially now with the younger generation coming up they're motivated by different things than say you or me were like for me it was all about money it was like oh you're going to pay me a little more i'm going to work twice as hard but now i don't know if that's quite the case and so it's you know <laughs> It's, 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 and to your point, it's, it's understanding what drives people and then, you know, ultimately listening with intent to what your employees really want. Uh, right. I, I think again, is so important for the success of a company and sustainable success at that. Right. And uh, I always tell the employees, like, I can't make up a job that you like. <laughs> right. I have a job and <laughs> we're going to make sure that you enjoy it. And, you know, so uh, yeah. yeah, those are, and even now, like in the interview process, we'll tell them very, I'll, like my team actually does the first few interviews to uh, screen out the technical pieces. And then yeah. I do the last one. Mm-hmm. So all yeah. that's helped out a lot, actually. Uh, Good. Yeah, compared to like 2021, 2021 was yeah, very stressful. Okay. Well, now it's in the rear view. So it's, it's life's about rear views and and windows. And right now you need to look through the window out the front and not look in the rear view Exactly. because it's, it's what's done is done. Right. No, I'm thankful. Right. Like, so I'm, I mean, I agree with that. Yes. Definitely looking forward, but you know, I'm, I'm more appreciative of where we are today. Good for you. No, that's really exciting. And I do want to keep going here, but before we do keep going, I just want to make an announcement to tell everyone about my new sponsor inflow control they are a norwegian technology company dedicated to improving the efficiency of oil recovery while simultaneously reducing the industry's environmental impact using autonomous inflow control valve technology also known as aicv this breakthrough technology improves oil production by reducing unwanted gas and water which enables mature oil fields to be more profitable by supporting oil production from zones that would have typically been bypassed to learn more, click the link in the show notes or simply check them out on LinkedIn or at inflowcontrol.no. Thanks, uh, Sarah. Appreciate that. So real quick, after you know, I did some further reading, doing a little bit of research, um, but I noticed something that is quite admirable about yourself. And this kind of ties into what we've been talking about. But you appear to deploy a pretty high degree of humility, which I think is an important characteristic of a good leader. Am I correct in my assumption? And if so, where does that come from? I don't know. I'll have to ask my team if I do or not. <laughs> well, and the reason, because you made a post and you, you, you made, it was a cartoon and I don't remember the details, but you said it, you know, it was, it was your team sent it to you as a joke and, and you said, oh, like they're kind of poking fun at me and you, right. you found the humor in it to yeah. which I think you, you appreciated them feeling comfortable enough to send you that. Um, but again, that just shows like, you know, again, the the soft skills and and having humility to know that there's a sense of humbleness and Hey, you know, I'm not, I know I'm not perfect. I know, I know, I don't know anything like everything. Uh, but again, I just thought that was interesting. I didn't know if humility was something that you've worked on over time, or if that was something that maybe your parents taught you or because a lot of people, especially now have a hard time with humility. Yeah, it has to do with how you're raised and where you come from and everything else. So like, you know, um, I, I think I mentioned this a lot of times, like I'm, I mean, I come from, um, uh, I was raised in the Middle East where women have like nothing, right? So from mm-hmm. a young age, you see women without too much of a future. 
except for being a housewife, or even if they do have a career, it's very much constrained by who they're married to and the society and everything else. They're not totally free women that can do anything and everything they want to. So you you come from that background from a young age. So you're very more thankful for where you are. So when I look back, even as a little girl, um, I don't think I would have thought I'll be a CEO and employ a bunch of men. And my co-founder has been awesome, right? And it's Robert Estill. He was vice president at Marathon Oil, really several high positions, right? And to know that he would collaborate with me and to know that today I sit with chief operating officers and they actively look for advice from me. Like I remember the first time I had to do a presentation, I was like, you know, Robert should do it because you know I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I fit. And then the customer said, no, no, we think Sarah, you should do the presentation. So it's a mix of a lot of that. And it's a very unique perspective that you have. And like I said, I'm very thankful for the team that I have today. Mm-hmm. So I just think I'm more of a coach. I want them to excel in everything they do. They do. And some days, yes, they've seen the other side where I'm frustrated and I'm like, oh, these are such simple things. We solve such huge problems. Why do you make mistakes on little things, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they go, okay, okay, we're sorry. Like, you know, we just, it was an oversight, right? And I'm truly this team has accomplished and done some marvelous stuff. And they make mistakes too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's just a unique perspective. Yeah, no, I mean, again, your your background and, and story is so fascinating. And for people who want to get to know a little bit more about Sarah and her story, if you go back to Oil & Gas Upstream on Spotify or anything, episode 99, uh, I interviewed Sarah. And so if you want to get to know a little bit more about her background, then certainly go on and do that. Because um, I think it's fascinating, you know, your your upbringing and where you're from and how you got here, um, which again, I'm not going to go over the story again. Yeah. But 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 again, I think it's really neat to to hear because I think it's kind of sets the foundation for your success and and what you've been able to accomplish. Um, before we get going, because I want to talk more, you know, dive deep into the energy and sort of the technical uh, aspect of, of the podcast. But um, I'm I'm curious for you, have you uh, like what advice would you give to for, to young driven females, you know, that are say minorities amongst a minority. Um, you know, my wife, she was in oil and gas and she's a minority amongst minorities switched. And now she's in real estate investing, but it's, I always love hearing her take or advice for women, um, that are, you know, say come from either the the same type of background or raised in a similar environment or whatever the case is, but what kind of advice would you give females that, you know, may face those challenges, like you speak of from back home who are trying to make a better life for themselves and who may look up to you as an inspiration? So, you know, like, um, of course, there are a lot of challenges, but challenges are not a bad thing. Uh, there's two people, two kinds that survive the challenges, right? And in our case, I look back, yes, um, you're dealt the cards, you're dealt. How do you make the best of it, right? And uh, for me, uh Personally, right? Like people talk about how women are treated in the United States. I'm like, you should go to Saudi Arabia, right? You'll get a good dose. <laughs> it's, yeah. different, right? it's a lot better. So for me, um, yes, have I experienced racism? I have, but it's not to the tune that I was raised in, right? Do I experience different things? I do. But um, looking back, I'm glad for some of those challenges because it wouldn't have made us like today it's a team behind um behind the story but it wouldn't have pushed us to drive 10 times more value for half the price in the market right Hmm. Um, i wouldn't have ever been able to deliver that had i not been able to push through some of those early challenges right it's tough right and the market is tough like business is tough there's several competition competitors so for you to truly make a mark and drive those differentiators, it's um, it's not always a bad thing. Hmm. It's about um, how you how can you go another day, right? Keep and if you practice that long enough, it gets easy. Hmm. It's not so hard anymore. 
Right. Like, yeah, like two years ago when people said certain things, it would really hurt my feelings. Or four years ago, whatever. I'd be in my cubicle crying. Mm-hmm. But like now people could say stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. Let's move on. What's next? <laughs> yeah. I it's it's yeah, I think it's kind of like, you know, once you've been exposed to something over and over again, that level of shock or you, you kind of build calluses emotionally. Um you know, and, and again, I can't put myself in your shoes, but just kind of going back to challenges and, and, you know, whether it was, you know, being made fun of, or whether it was, you're told you couldn't do something over and over or whatever the case is, it's just, I think over time, if you can overcome it and you've got enough, um, if, if you're, if you're secure and you're confident enough in who you are as a person and you have a good high level of self-esteem, eventually you can kind of let it roll off your back. And, you know, it's kind of like an interesting point is, you know, I have young kids, my daughter's seven, my son's four. And so growing up, you know, they, they got raised in a great environment, very loving, lots of, you know, confident boosting, uh, you know, affirmation, oh, great job, you know, this and that. And then, you know, it's just naturally, you know, in, in, in life, people say things that they don't necessarily agree with. And, and in, in their little world, when someone's like, my son was at a trampoline park for a birthday and one little boy who I think it was innocent, but he said, you're not a good boy. And it crushed him. Like it absolutely crushed him. He came to me and was just like, daddy, that boy said I wasn't a good boy and I am a good boy. And, and to see that I normally was like, dude, like who cares? But I was like, ah, to him, that meant more than anything. Cause I could tell him he's a good boy a thousand times, but the one second, the one time someone comes to him and says, you're not a good boy. It, it was devastating, right? So he had to like, we had this talk and it was like, okay, like these are things that are going to happen. You have to overcome this. And, and, um, but to the point of like, I think if someone were to say it to him again, he would remember, oh, dad says I'm a good boy. That person doesn't know what he's talking about. Let's just move on. And so it's like, you do hopefully develop these things early on, which I think for parents is important to put your kids in situations where they do face a little bit of, of adversity. It, because if not, if you try and protect them and, and, you know, create this little bubble for them. Once they get into the real world, you don't want them to have to face that for the first time when they're in college because <laughs> they, right, exactly. they, they wouldn't know how to respond to it. You know what I mean? Exactly. And yeah, exactly. You know, spot on. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Because so, I actually take my, I tell my kids that, hey, you know, don't plan on mom paying for your college. I mean, you're nine and 10, a little bit older. So I'm like, you know, you better start working hard because, you know, this is, all the opportunities you've got. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. That could be a whole nother topic for a whole nother day, but um, <laughs> yeah. let's, no, let's right. pivot. Right. Yeah. But no, I think it's important to touch on, especially, you know, as, as a mom and entrepreneur, it's, these are, these are real things and this is real life. Right. So, uh, but to kind of, you know, pivot and switch gears here a little bit. Uh, I'm curious if you, if you take a sort of a step back and look on a macro perspective of the energy industry, um, you know, we can you know, relate it more to oil and gas if you'd like, but what core belief around energy have you changed your mind on over the last few years? Does anything come to mind, any paradigm shifts that kind of have sort of pivoted your, the way, the direction you're heading, or can you speak on any of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I think like, you know, I've been in oil and gas coming up to, I think I'm, I'm probably close to 20 years, right? So, and I work with operators, right? And I mean, as an engineer. Uh, <clears throat> so I still remember early days, like this is 2000, it's not that old. Uh, I mean, it's 2006 that I started my career, right? Um, no one was very open to doing things differently. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, a gentleman with 100 BOPD a day is now open to real-time analysis. Mm-hmm. I think when I started, that's a big shift. And that's a good shift. Um, people being more open to okay. doing better. And, you know. So what do you think has driven, driven that sort of shift in, in I would call it men, sort of the mentality behind progress right because like you said a long time ago and i've been in this industry since 2004 so you know roughly the same amount of time and you know there was always this sort of the the common response to anything is if it ain't broke don't fix it or this is how we've always done it and it works why would we 
why would we put ourselves through changing something if if it has not proven or well, I don't want to be a guinea pig. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm not about to take the risk in doing this. Like, there's too much on the line. And, you know, like there was always this hurdle to try and get over, which I think we talked about this when our first episode. But going back to the question is, is you you've noticed and, and you, through experience, through observation, this is a this is a shift in the way we do business. What do you think is driving that? sort of shift in people's attitudes towards change. See, I think it was $35, barrel of, $35 for a barrel of oil. That changed a lot, right? Um, mm-hmm. It was my first time seeing that. And it was interesting, though, as we were going through that cycle, uh, there are a bunch of, uh, you know, seasoned uh, folks in oil and gas. They were like, oh, you know, I've been through six of these downturns. And I'm like, okay, so I guess like everyone's just going to survive this one, right? But this downturn was very different for several reasons. Because I think, I mean, I grew up with shale oil, right? Shale oil is very different from vertical oil and the performance, right? So really at $35 a barrel, a lot of customers, I mean, I knew, I personally knew customers that shut in their wells. Because not that the wells couldn't produce, but because the operating cost was really higher than what they are getting paid for. Right. And I think that changed a lot of thought patterns. Mm. Because if they didn't really know what their costs truly were, um, then they can't really change or make any uh, adjustments. Right. A lot of them didn't know which wells to shut in and which ones to keep flowing because the cost of barrel varied so much from one well to another and from one field to another. Yes. Hmm. You know, so, and shale wells have a very steep decline curve. Yep. So it, I think when you're put in positions like that, uh, you have to change. Right. You're forced to think differently. Yep. I, I, I would agree. And and I'm, so I, I come from a little bit of a different angle on, I'm on the oil field service side, um, you know, on the drilling side and we're going through, I think a major shift here soon uh, due to the fact that a operators, you know, the sort of the EIA, or if you look at different, you know, let's look at supply and demand fundamentals, right? The demand for oil is going to be there and models show, or, or sort of there's forecasts showing like, Oh, we need, you know, in the U.S., we're going to be producing, say, 12.4 to, say, 13 million barrels per day within the next year to call it 18 months. But the reality is, like you said, and then decline between decline curves, rig count, duck count, you know, there's all these variables. But the reality yeah. is, is there's less and less people joining the oil field. On, I'm, and I'm speaking just on the yeah. drilling yes, side because that's right. what I'm right. familiar yeah. with. It's like, okay, if you're, if, you know, efficiencies are good because that means less rigs, just as much drilled footage, hopefully just as much good wells, all else equal. But because supply chain challenges, tighter margins, operators' input costs are greater. So even though it's $100 oil, not currently today, but hypothetically speaking, $100 oil doesn't mean you're making a lot more money than you were at $70 oil because of the input costs from guys like me having to charge more than I normally would because of all the chaos that's happened, right? So with all that being said, it's it's going to be really interesting, especially on the drilling side. Is like okay, well, we're, we don't have as many people to that want to go work drilling rigs because they could go work at McDonald's and have a side hustle on their phone and just make much, just as much money. Uh, why would you go to you know in the middle of nowhere's and freeze your you know tail off and for two weeks at a time? Whatever the case right. is, it's just a reality. So it's like, what are we going to do? Well, we have to increase our efficiency we have to adopt automation we need instead of 20 people in a drilling rig at one time we need maybe eight because there's just you know we need to drill more wells if we want to keep up with production even just to maintain flat production so all this ties into what you're talking about is it's you know increasing operational efficiency measuring predictive analysis it all is part of this huge ecosystem which is going to bring me to my next point um you, you've been creating and you're a big proponent and create lots of good content around the importance of operational KPIs for oil and gas companies mm-hmm. specifically. You recently wrote an article discussing the role of chief operating officers, COOs in oil and gas 
And there's three critical operational KPIs in which you speak of. I'd like to dive into that yeah. by first having you explain for those who aren't familiar, what's the role of a COO at an oil and gas operating company? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's so interesting. And, uh, you know, as we had to explain to like, you know, I'm always talking about to our sales channel partners about the COO. And it's interesting. Not many people know that how important his role is, uh, his or her, right? Who they are, what they do. So a chief operating officer, typically they have a very technical background. You're responsible for production, for operations, everyday operations that's already happening, right? Um, like restaurants have probably have chief, chief operating officers that are trying to lower the cost of running. You know, these are all chief operating officers in every industry. So in oil and gas, yeah, they have to know a lot of technical aspects because they might have to troubleshoot a well. They might have to troubleshoot if um, payments don't come in for what they actually sold, right? So chief operating officers typically technical. Uh, most of, just about every customer that I work with, uh, the chief of operating officer always has a technical background. Very, I, well, personally, I haven't let, um, met someone with a finance or a business background. Right. And uh, not to say that they don't exist. Uh, I just have a small sample size, right? Um, <laughs> but typically they have a technical background and they're running production. Production is key, but getting paid is key. They know their costs. They're actually responsible for operating cash flow. And operating cash flow is generated daily. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a big investment that pays out later. It's every day. It's an everyday grind. Mm. So, and that's so that kind of brings me to my next question: is it's like so the market is the market, unless you're hedged, right? But oil and yeah. gas commodity prices are set, and the oil and gas companies, unless they're hedged, which is a whole another sort of business complexity. But hypothetically speaking, if you know, spot prices are $100 a barrel, $30 a barrel. You know, and again, I'm, I'm not too familiar with all the transaction stuff, but ultimately that's what the customer, that's what the operators are getting. It's like, oh, higher oil prices, we're going to be able to sell our oil for more is, you know, kind of the, the sense. But where the real, I think, key to success is, is, is operating costs. How do you measure it? What are you measuring? And how much effort are we putting into reducing these operating costs? other than rebidding work to try and get your service costs down as much as you possibly can right. all the time, right? Because that's a big one. Where can we shave costs? Well, let's hit our vendors for a 10% discount that, you know, know, again, it's everything counts, right? But so I'm curious from your perspective, because you've sat on both sides, how much effort is actually put into reducing operating costs? Like what, what are some things that operators do well? And what are things that operators ne don't necessarily do well? So here's where I see a shift from big operators and small operators, right? And I, uh, thankfully, I had a career in both. I worked for Marathon Oil, we're a big operator. Uh, then I worked for a smaller independent, they're a small operator, right? Uh, big operators like Exxon, Shell, Marathon Oil, Total, they are great. They're, we're fairly good at operations. Um, we focus very much on, we don't do a lot of predictive analytics. And I think they try to do that in-house. They do it with more consulting contracts, which are pretty expensive, but they do invest in it. And you'll see it on their investor presentations, right? Yeah. So they do hone in on their operating costs very well, exceptionally well. They, um, like for example, at Marathon, we knew our operating costs for the rest of the year. Like our chemical costs were already rebid and ironed out and awarded for the entire year, right? Mm -hmm. So we knew what chemical cost would be for the entire year. And um, so I'm going to give an example of a tank overflow, right? And um, environmentally, we were very, we're very good operators. Uh, essentially, we knew we know our costs. We know what we're getting paid for. Everything is goes through like SAP back in when I was working. Yeah. You know? yeah. So everything is controlled, everything is analyzed, right? 
consistently month over month, we know what our numbers are. We do have a high overhead though, because we manually do it with smart people, right? They have, we have electrical engineers, we have mechanical engineers, we have a chemical specialist, we have a road, I don't know, we have a compressor specialist. We have all of these people and we do that really well. Um, so one example I like to give is, um, you know, we're so, our automation is so down that we would never have a tank overflow, right? And one time something failed and a tank did overflow, right? And we had to go through a root cause analysis. The guys in the field thought they were gonna get fired because this is like never happened. <laughs> and this is out in Eagleford in San Antonio, right? Yeah, yeah. Compare that to a small operator where I landed. Tank overflows are not a big deal. And it happens uh, once a month. <laughs> which is which is too much. I mean, they're not a big deal, but really, they, that's, <laughs> they shouldn't happen at all. Not in this day and age. <laughs> and, um, and you think like, so you can Google these. Like, you know, if you Google tank fires and the Permian, yeah. uh, a lot of small operators numbers would come up. Names would come up. You would seldom see Exxon or Shell come up or Chevron, for example. Those mm -hmm. operators are not necessarily linked to the tank fire, right? Um, those are expensive because like facilities were not really uh, simulated and built correctly. Uh, because they wanted to shave fifty thousand right dollars. Um, so, uh, like one of the common practice. So, anyways, it depends on the operator. But typically, I see the smaller operators focus more on drilling and completing a well for the lowest cost, and they seem to think <clears throat> production just happens, and <laughs> like it just happens, right? And it's like, no, I don't think it quite works that way. <laughs> and they're great at raising money uh, with investors telling them, hey, you know, look at the IP of this well. This well is going to produce for like 30 years. Um, unfortunately, I think those investors also got a shock at $35 a barrel, right? Yeah. And they came back and said, didn't you tell me operating cost was $16 a barrel? What happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> it really wasn't. By the time they paid out some tank fires, they're out. So, mm. um, and, you know, they don't really keep track a lot of it. Like, I'll see chemical. Um, I mean, a small thing is chemical, but chemical is actually pretty expensive by the gallon. Right. And you need that to, um, if it's a very corrosive environment or it, uh, or where your PPMs are high. It's a, uh, but, you know, it's not measured. Even if they measure it manually and keep track of it on a per barrel basis, they can optimize and make sure they don't go over a certain threshold. Right. But instead, it's that's just one component of so many things, right? Right. No. And so in in the article, you you, were, you mentioned which I found was interesting. There there was sort of three very important areas that are critical to analyze. Um, can you share those? And then yeah. from there, how Soda OG is actually adding value to, to help with, with that type of analysis? So first was production optimization, right? You should know. So you have a lot of production optimization solutions on the market today. But the key isn't to optimize all your wells. Like let's say you have a thousand wells. It's to optimize the right wells where you have the highest ROI. And that highest ROI is, is um, dependent on several other of your cost factors. So the second part is knowing exactly what your costs are for each well and each barrel of oil. The third is ensuring that you get paid by your purchases for every barrel of oil that you make. It's amazing um, when you sell by trucks, right? Trucks actually have this physical ticket that they leave, right? And it's and it's easy. I mean, not easy. It, it is easy. So um, small operators have to do one of two things, right? They can either figure out how to analyze it using their own time. So tank levels go up and down. They all have tank level sensors. Typically, every small operator has it too. Yeah. They don't yeah. analyze it very well. There's a unique signature, and every COO knows it too. They know when a truck 
has taken product from a tank, right? The tank is really cash on hand. You made oil, storing it on the tank, you're going to sell it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Estimate your revenue on an everyday basis. Make sure that, um, so that's, so we find a lot of cash for our customers there. Essentially, a lot of times the truck tickets that were generated that they have on hand is not paid for by the purchasers. And that's free money. And this could be 3% to 7%. So that's simple. Um, Do it by hand with your tech. Have him or her do it every day. Uh, Make sure that every tank level drop has a truck ticket associated with it. That's it. Right. And then when your reconciliation statement comes in, make sure every truck ticket is on there. Like every truck ticket is on there. It's hard to do that for like every tank and everything else, but you know, that's cash. And that's a lot of cash actually, 7% of your. No, it's huge. 3% of your margin is like Canada. Yeah, it all all counts, right? And it's, and especially now, like, like I was mentioning earlier, the, where the margins are so slim or they're getting slimmer and and it's, it's, things are getting tighter. It's whether it's 1%, 6%, it all compounds and accumulates over time. And if you, if you annualize it or extrapolate it over say the life of a project, it can make a significant impact on the financial health of the business. (laughs) And this is every day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, so, so then help sort of help us understand the relationship with Soda OG and how you guys are plugging into this sort of overall system for your customers. And, and, and like, what does that look like? Cause it, uh, you guys do, so you're a SaaS company, is that correct? Yes. Okay. So yeah, give, give, give an overview of of it and then kind of how you're helping with these types of challenges. Yeah, so we actually sell to sell into the COOs, and our model is unique. Uh, we don't charge for billable hours, and I always like to clarify that now because um, just because we don't charge for billable hours does not mean we do not incur billable hours, because um, the solution wouldn't work if it's not set up correctly and if it's not serviced correctly. Yeah, because we're aware of like how distributed and how siloed the data is. So it takes man hours to bring it together and um, integrate it and then analyze it, right? So uh, yes, we are a SaaS company. We actively analyze real-time data. That's our key differentiator. We analyze data from sensors with engineering-based principles to drive operating cash flow. And it's on several different aspects. We're essentially an enterprise solution for operations. So going back to the tank levels, right? We actually analyze the tank levels. We'll find faulty tank levels. And we have machine learning algorithms and AI supervised models that will correct it. So it will correct it and it will still detect a drop, the truck tickets. And it'll essentially ask for the operators to just load the tickets. So before us, right, the operator would have to match the ticket to the lease or the tank or the facility or the well, you don't have to with us. You upload it, our um, OCR picks it up and it'll automatically associate it with the right wells or the right facility. So a lot of that manual part is gone. Nice. And we pick up the ticket numbers, everything else. Uh, Reconciliation report comes in. We automatically, again, we use OCR to match it up. And what is OCR for those who aren't familiar? It's the tech that reads uh, text from any receipt. Gotcha. Any paper transaction, um, it can just read numbers and letters. Gotcha. And is that an AI type mm-hmm. application? Yes. Ah, okay. Yes, yes. Cool. So, gotcha. so that's one aspect. So AI has plenty, right? And then you have predictive, which we'll go into later. But this is an AI powered application. Uh-huh. where it does one piece that a human would otherwise have to spend a lot of time doing. Right. And hmm. so now you can't afford to do that or you can't have a technician do that day over day. The computer does it for you. And you can look at and see it doesn't entirely replace people. And that's what 
that's another myth, right? Oh, it's going to come take my job. I don't know if it's going to take your job because this is not work you want to do. You're a human and you're capable of so much more. Right. Well, it's, it's I, I saw, I read something and because there's a, a lot of that sort of skepticism about AI and machine learning and robotics that it's taking people's jobs, but it's not necessarily taking the job of for people. It's allowing that one person to do more with what they have. And so it's, if you yeah. kind of look at it from a different lens, it's like, oh, I can be so much more productive and create that much more value because I have these tools readily available for me to be able to, you know, again, create value within my company. It's not taking jobs. It's just allowing you to do more jobs. And so, and because there's, yeah. it's, it's gonna, it's, it's ever evolving, right? Like when I'm sure when people started, you know, manufacturing cars and using robotics to do that. And, you know, I'm sure people are like, oh my goodness, all our jobs in vehicle, you know, the vehicle industry are gone. Well, I'm sure over time, the amount of people that have been employed by vehicle manufacturers or companies has probably increased if I had to guess. Exactly. exactly. And <laughs> so. this is a key aspect that's not being done in the company, right? And it, yeah. it has the potential to get you 7% more. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, and it gives more value to, like, for example, Amazon Prime, they can't afford to do it at $70 a year, two-day shipping, right, without robots. Because if they hired humans to pack, they it's just, that price is going to be higher, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not any bucks, you know. Right, yeah. So I think sometimes folks miss that, that... Like, and it's always fun for us to, like, you know, we always give this link to our customers. We say, download these truck tickets over here and send it on to whoever paid you this month. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> they have the receipts and they said, hey, we have proof that you owe us X amount of dollars. And right. every purchaser so far, they might say, oh, one of those transactions are off by timing. But they typically agree to every one of them. Hmm. So how that makes sense. So how explain the logistics behind, say, a company hypothetically is listening. Hey, we'd love to use you. Sounds great. I don't care what the cost is. Let's go. Is this something that takes? Because you taught you mentioned sensors and everything else. So I would imagine you guys don't go out and set up sensors. You plug into their existing infrastructure and then they yeah. feed you the data type of thing? We usually do all the legwork to um, get that data in. So if it's existing sensors, we they don't need to know about the sensors or anything else. We essentially will tie in to this person that's managing it. Sometimes it's outsourced, some, sometimes it's in-house. We'll work with the vendors. Like for example, with the sensors, all sensors are mapped to a registered map. We just go pull the register maps, we'll get the data, and off we go. And then, you know, the cost data is typically in Excel spreadsheets or wherever, or invoices. Right. We do all the legwork. That's another unique part about Soda OG, is we don't necessarily put the burden on our customers. Of course. To do all of that. We just take the data the way, it, and it works now for manual data too. So if you don't have sensors, and you're taking down tank levels manually, we can work with that as well. So okay. Because I was gonna ask, not everyone is has the same amount of ability and access to their own data. So I guess you know you you it's you kind of have to tailor it, I would imagine, to to that yeah. in that that customer's existing infrastructure, it's existing sort of framework yeah. and structures of everything, how they have everything set up, which again is good. So would you say there's a pretty low level of friction to actually adopt Soda OG and then begin using it? Or does it take, say, a month or two to get everything going? Like explain the, hey, let's hire you to the point where you're actually using the the data or using your the value. It actually takes just two weeks About for two us weeks. to get okay. set up. And then after that, it's even lower. It, it's, it's only days because we know how the data is organized. Yeah. The business is exactly the same. Everyone makes oil, everyone sells it. How they have the data in-house is just unique to each customer. Of course. So um, that's the part that has to be organized. And that takes time because we don't take shortcuts. Um, 
you know, we actually spend a lot of time making sure the data is mapped correctly, or else the results won't be there. Of course. And we're driven by results, right? Yep. Uh, no, you know, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, um, you have, you know, because in, in, in our industry, there's two types of, well, I say there's two, there's, there's a handful of different size type companies who all have somewhat of a different business model. You have the super majors and you have the large caps, mid caps, small caps, but let's, you know, for hypothetically speaking, let's call it the big companies and the little guys. Yeah. Do you guys, I mean, is there a, is there a better suit, a fit depending on the size of the operator and how many barrels are producing or do you guys are can you guys add value to any any size operator? So today it's any size operator, and that's what we're most excited about because okay. we've done and we've built out a lot of the infrastructure, um, a lot of the and it's come because of our contracts with the mid, with the bigger companies. Hmm. But now that would that which is what's really exciting is that we want to go help the guy that's making hundred barrels a day. And let him know exactly what his costs are, where he can improve margins, where he might not be able to, what his constraints are, all the way up to, I don't know, like two, 200,000, 300,000 barrels a day. Awesome. Okay. So it, it's, I mean, to any operator producing any amount of hydrocarbons, there's yeah. an application and there's fit for you guys. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So I want to take a quick pivot. I know we're coming up on the hour, so I'll try and keep it short. It's just, it's an exciting topic, especially when you're talking about, you know, data analytics and AI. And 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 one thing that has come up lately in conversation, which is a hot topic of conversation, is is predictive analytics, predictive AI. What what would you say the sort of how does that play a role in the future of energy um, with regards to what you guys are doing? Is there sort of like a projected vision on how you see this all coming together to, you know, essentially improve the way we do business? Yeah, absolutely. So like, you know, um, oil and gas is a different business, right? Yeah, you get paid on reserves, what's in the ground, and then you get paid when you produce it. Those reserves are ultimately going to zero. Every well is projected to go to zero production because the reserves are emptying out. So from a cash flow perspective, if you can position the COO to predict his cash flow for the next year, where he can autonomously see the decline curves. So you have a lot of engineering-based forecasting, right? That's what's done before the well is drilled. And as the well is drilled, the reservoir engineers do that. Right? But your real-time data could point a different story. It could say that your production capability might be higher just based on the real-time data and all of the different parameters like tubing pressure, casing pressure, uh, flow, uh, flowing bottom hole pressure that's uh, calculated on an everyday basis now. But anyways, using this forecast with your cash flow now, because now you also know your operating cost. Before it was more of an assumption. Mm -hmm. Now you actually have like invoices for saltwater disposal for your trucks. Like this truck is going to cost you two barrels, two dollars a barrel to truck it, right? Those are all, and it could be as high as three dollars a barrel. If you send it by pipeline, that's only 50 cents. Now that you know your true costs, being able to predict it with the machine learning algorithm using real-time historical data is huge value. Because now a COO doesn't have to reactively frack a well to maintain production. He can plan it. He's got his risk schedule. He knows what wells he's going to be able to frack. He can also use some flexibility on the pricing too, because vendors are more open to flexible pricing if they have some sort of a commitment and a lookout. Right? So, and it helps everyone. So that's where predictive analytics actually plays a huge role because you can predict your future cash flow now with reliable, in a very reliable manner, using several different data sets. Mm. So I'm just making a note here. That's interesting. And these are computations that it's almost impossible for a human being to do on a daily basis. Yeah. And that's no, what you Yeah. No, that's because there's, yeah, there's constantly data coming in. So you'd have to have someone crunching numbers real time, all the time. 
yeah, which, which then, again ties back into yeah the, the data analytics and and AI and um, which again I just think is super fascinating and I, and 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 I'm excited because I think we're you know we're I think we're at the edge of a I don't know necessarily a cliff but like you're, we're we're sitting in the rocket right now and and you know especially you know even AI in so like over during the pandemic and during COVID everyone was sitting at home. There was a lot of discussion around blockchain and and NFTs and and AI and this whole Web three thing, which I thought was taking a certain direction, and it still kind of is. But every, you know, it's kind of there's a lot of been a lot of has happened on on the on the crypto side of things. But with blockchain, it was interesting. But now there's since sort of the focus is more towards AI, and recently there's been uh, softwares that have come out. Um, like chat GPT, Jasper, and these really fascinating tools. And I made a post about it on LinkedIn, because I think this is just going to revolutionize the way we, whether it's create content, whether it's we create script, whether it's, you know, I, I just, I see this Pandora's box that's just like opened up and it's glowing and like the world is about to change again, which is super fascinating. So while I thought NFTs and Web3 were going to change the world, um, you know, again, I've been known to be wrong probably more than once. Uh, but now I think that this AI opportunity and and the fact that consumers, along with, you know, business to business, business to consumer, if, if companies can adopt the true potential of it, and I don't think we really even know what the true potential is, it could be a game changer in so many different ways. Um, but I guess the, the question, and I'm leading up to a question around this is, what do you think is the biggest challenge um, that exists in the, in the AI technology space. I mean, it's exciting. People are trying to sit, you know, figure it out, but wh what would you say is still something that, that is a challenge that we as let's just focus on oil and gas or energy are going to have to overcome to truly realize the potential and, and adopt it correctly. So, you know, like machine models, like uh, Shell, Exxon, they have like teams inside that actually have been working on this, right? And then there's us now. Um, mm -hmm. The biggest reason, the, the hardest part on AI adoption is actually fine tuning it. And the amount of hours it'll take a data scientist and you know machine learning professional to actually bring those relevant data points, there's just a massive amount, right? Um, data mapping is key. That's hard. Because you know, there's a lot of technical pieces that go into it, and it's not hiring a developer. Like you know, um, when we were starting Soto OG, I had a lot of petroleum engineers that said, "I could, I can code." You know, hire me, and I, and I'm like, no, no, made a few mistakes. <laughs> Just be a petroleum engineer, right? Like so, today on our team, I have only a petroleum engineer. Um, he's not. It's not that like he's not smart. He can understand code. But no, I actually have developers that code, they're focused on that, right? Right. So it's bringing this excellence of expertise across the different variables to drive one output with reliably. So Watson, for example, IBM Watson failed a lot of times because they couldn't get the outputs to be reliable. Mm -hmm. So if your outputs can't be trusted, that's where AI falls short. But if it can be like ChatGPT and write an article for you that's almost close enough to how you would write it, that's awesome. Yeah. Right? So that's an AI model. That's But yes, here's the issue with oil and gas. And I think that that was some of the stuff we had to overcome personally, where they would say, well, you know, we tried it. This other gentleman said he could do it. Or this other guy wrote a code and it didn't work. I don't trust it, right? And it's like, okay, um, those are just bad uh, experiences. <laughs> and yeah. we'll have bad experiences with AI. They're going to get excited. They're going to jump in. And it just won't give them what they thought it could have. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. and with consulting contracts, it's a runaway train on price. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Huh. So, so kind of going back to, you know, you mentioned writing articles. And again, I think the future of it is, is this has a, a bunch of potential. But people, 
and companies are still trying to figure out like, how do we use it and where's the value, which we're getting better and better. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but for you talking, you know, I've noticed over time, you've, you've, you've gotten more active on the content creation space. Right. Um, mainly through some of it is, is a lot of it is, is educating and, and it's discussing a lot of these topics that we're discussing today. Um, so I'm curious is, you know, what, why is creating content in a, an important initiative for you and for you to share your message and why are you doing it? Because I think it's, it's something that unique and I'm very, I'm a very big proponent of creating content, communicating, branding. I think it's, it's super critical. But for someone like yourself as a CEO, CEO, not you don't see too many CEOs doing that. And so I'm curious why you're doing it and where the value is for you to doing that. Well, honestly, we want to drive that value for our customers, whether they use it, use us or not. Right. And um, it's it's a new way of marketing, actually, that's coming up where you actually give before you try to take. And it's actually so this year has proven out really well for us, um, taking that approach. And it's incentivizing our sales channel partners now. And we can be more picky or careful about the sales channel partners that we partner with. Mm-hmm. Because previously we thought they knew how to sell and they quite didn't. <laughs> because right. they're different, right? So we're so it's actually helping us in multi and typically we've sold one at a time. Again, I talk to CEO, have an hour conversation, explain and see what his intent is. It's either one of two ways. In the first meeting, I can tell uh, what, and I won't do the second meeting if the intent wasn't there. So we've been successful. So we're trying to duplicate that in the digital world through content creation. And uh, yeah, I mean, we want. I mean, we want all of our customers to be very profitable on their operating cash flow. It's something they have to do every day. And um, yeah, whether they use us or not, that's up to them. But, you know, we really think this is a good way to showcase your brand as well. Yeah, no, I, and you, you clearly get it. And it's this is something that I've been like screaming from the mountaintops for years about, you know, creating content and because ultimately content is the way we can communicate a message at scale. And now, because where's the attention, especially since the pandemic, when everyone was sitting at home, where were everyone's eyeballs? It was either Netflix, it was the internet and where in the internet, it was LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, Netflix, Hulu. You know what I mean? There, there's not that many spaces that people were consuming content and then information again, TikTok, LinkedIn, you know, Facebook, whatever. And so it's just like, it's always important as, as anyone in business, whether it's business to consumer. And I think business to business, uh, companies are starting to understand is where do you get the, where is the underpriced attention and how do you target your message to the right people to ultimately increase your ability to, there's a term for it now called social selling. It's essentially, it's a form of sales it's a it's it's part of a sales strategy is by creating content positioning yourself increasing your branding which is ties into marketing but I, I say all that to say i think it's it's super awesome that you're doing that i would encourage you to do more and i would when you get to a point assuming you can allocate capital towards doing it is is hiring or not say hiring but but yeah. but at least consider like community managers and people that can take cuz everything that you're you're essentially creating content every day all day but there's only a, a small fraction of it that you actually capture and and put it into, you know, the the internet world for others to to see it. But there's so much that we do on a daily basis that could be put out there to that could increase customers, you know, just creating awareness around certain initiatives. It's, you know, educating people, positioning yourselves as the experts to where then, you know, when someone thinks of AI and predictive analytics, the first thing that you want everyone to to see is your logo sarah's face smiling face the content the newsletter it you you have to do it all and so i think it's great and so like i said i I could talk about this stuff all day because i've seen the roi just for me personally obviously yourself um and it's out there for forever right you can always refer back to it it's like a library of of 
the, 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 the messaging that you're trying to communicate to the audience. And so I'm, yeah, I, I love seeing when, co- I, you know, seeing companies do nothing and then all of a sudden start creating content and they're like, Oh my goodness, this is awesome. Uh, so I, again, I, I applaud you for, for doing that and taking the time to do yeah. it. So it's, uh, it's Thank awesome. The, the, so the last question I have on that is, are you on TikTok? I'm not, uh, but uh, we, I mean, just no time. So um, <laughs> I was going to say that for other brands, the biggest concern, they always, like people will come tell me, they go, why do you put content out there? Someone else can copy it. Oh my God, I don't, I don't, it's not, it's hard to copy an AI model. You can copy my dashboard all day long, yep. but you can't get the results on there. You can't yep. predict. Like, you know, that's, and yeah. dashboards are available on Spotfire now and Tableau, like, you know, like well, it's are- that, that's, that to me is, is, is people just haven't people it's, it's, they haven't realized the paradigm shift because ultimately if everyone has access to all the same tools, creativity is the variable for success and the person driving these tools, that's the variable for success. I could get, you could give everyone your playbook you know, I'm using a sports analogy, but unless you have the people executing it and understanding it and driving it, there's no way that someone will be able to duplicate it. But at the end of the day, that's the beautiful thing about capitalism is it's like, let the the market will decide who's the best go out there and get it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Go out there work your ass off and try and be the best you can. And, and if someone comes out with something bigger and better and cheaper, well, then you shame on us and we need to get back to the drawing board. I should do better. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm always like, good luck to the brand that can analyze tank levels at my price, right? Like, I mean, exactly. hey, because I'm aware of the market pricing. Yeah. And if they exist, I want to work harder to be better. And because, you know, I've got to drive an ROI for my business too. Yeah. But yes, I 100% agree with you. And I think more people <laughs> should do that. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> yeah, super cool. I, I will think about TikTok. <laughs> Yeah, and and the way I would that I, the way I would think about TikTok is, I mean, there it's if if you were in the consumer business to consumer space, I would say like you have to do it. If you don't, I'm going to come over there and you know strangle you. But business to business is a little different, right? But but there's more and more people our age. I say our age, anywhere from say 30 to 50, that are now consuming TikTok content, and it's just another way to get your brand awareness out there. And if you can do it, and because so what they've noticed on TikTok is that a lot of people are going to TikTok not for entertainment only, but for actually sourcing information, news, yeah. education. How do I do X, Y, Z similar to YouTube. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, it still has a lot of underpriced attention. And so if you can position yourself as the, as the AI expert in oil and gas on TikTok, I guarantee you there's not many out there. <laughs> I know, but video uh, content. That's what, so writing, so I'm not even a great writer. Like sometimes I'll go back to my articles and I'm like, oh my gosh. Or like my team <laughs> will write to me and they'll like, Sarah, you made a mistake in your grammar. <laughs> that's, that's, that's okay it's though. Four hours to do, right? And, I'm, oh, and like, I remember one time when they said it, I was like, whatever, do you want to put four hours in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I can go back and correct it, right? Um. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing we try to do is everything that we put out there, we want it to be excellence. Yeah. Have that brand of excellence because yeah, it course. showcases on us on the kind of work we do. So yes. Yeah. So for video content creation, I've got to hire someone for sure. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> hey, all in due time. All in yeah. due time. Well, look, Sarah, this has been an absolute amazing conversation. I appreciate you doing this in between Christmas and New Year's. I'm excited for the future of Soda OG. If if uh if people are looking to reach out or to get to know a little bit more about what you guys offer, uh, what's the best way to do it? And I'll put the links in the show notes, but I'm yeah, assuming awesome. reach out on LinkedIn, your yeah. website, anywhere else? Uh, all of them. Yes. They can personally email me. It's just okay. Sarah, S-A-R-A-H at SotoOG.com. And okay. yeah, I'm happy to get back to them. Yeah. Awesome. Well, awesome. one last question before we close out, and it could be very, very brief answer, but... You, you, you're you're an interesting character you have personality you know you bring out good en- energy and persona what's something about you that not many people know about is there any good hidden sort of secrets or anything you'd like to to share with people that would kind of get a chuckle out of it or just find it something interesting that they could relate yeah, to you on I don't know about. um 
what people don't know about is how much, like I'm a mix of introvert and extrovert. So, okay. um, so you know, after a really long day, um, I love going out for dinner with a good friend of mine or a friend or like, you know, just having a fun conversation or something like that. Yeah. That's actually like my way of, uh, a lot of people don't, um, yeah, they don't necessarily think that's what I really want. But yeah, like I'll call up my friends and I'm like, hey, really want to go get dinner tonight? They're like, what about tomorrow? And I'm like, no, no, tomorrow won't work because I had a rough day today. <laughs> good. Well, that's that's good. Yeah. So what's what's your, so let's just say Sarah has a crazy day at work. You're exhausted. You need some good quality friend time, maybe a drink or or whatever your, is your choice. Where's your go-to spot? Do you have a favorite sp- spot here, in, whether it's Katie or Houston or or is, there, is, is your go time? Okay, which one is it? It's a fairy steakhouse in Katie. Beautiful, uh, yeah. Yeah, and then we actually, uh, Soto OJ this year, now has a locker at the Capitol Grill at City Center, which is really cool. Because we, yeah. we used to entertain clients there a lot. And I remember like when we first started, I'd walk past it. I'd be like, man, one day I need that, right? Yeah. And this year we did it. And it's kind of exciting. It's cool. That's, hey, you know what? You got to celebrate the little wins. I'm assuming you're in a position to be able to, to make that happen as a company. Yeah. And, you know, it's the little things. If, if that's what makes you happy and it's, you know, you spend a little bit to, to have that sort of sense of accomplishment or just, again, sort of that added touch of, ah, yes, like, this is why we're working hard is for the little things. Uh, I think it's yeah. amazing. And so, no, good for you. So if anyone out there. Became clients, you know, like. I get and that, that too. It yeah. adds to the experience and your clients are like, we just went out with Sarah and she's got this awesome locker and we got treated like royalty. I never had such amazing dinner with her. It was just <laughs> awesome. Uh, it, it's all part of it, right? <laughs> so anyway, so these are the two places I frequent quite a bit. Good, good, good. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers to you and the rest of the Soda OG team. You know, I hope nothing but the best in 2023. I can't wait. Maybe we'll do it around three next year and see, you know, what kind of things you've been doing and just to kind of keep up. And, uh, but I encourage you to keep, keep creating content, keep working hard, keep raising your beautiful family. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. And for the listeners out there, thanks again for joining us. If you could leave a review, subscribe, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'd love to, uh, yeah, again, just connect with the audience. Thanks for listening. And always remember that Everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.